Fellow Psychonauts, the Integrative Mental Health Conference is taking place April 15th through the 17th in San Francisco, California, and you can get 10% off of registration costs by using promo code MAPS when you visit imhc2019.com. Welcome to the podcast, episode 38 of the MAPS podcast. I'm Zach Leary. I'm your host. So happy to be back with you guys. Yes, on this episode of the podcast, we have Dr. Andrew Weil in an exclusive interview just for the MAPS podcast. Very, very exciting. And uh, I was just thrilled to be able to spend uh, the better part of an hour uh, conversing with Dr. Weil uh, in cyberspace about a great number of topics. And uh, it was truly, um, it's been something I wanted to do for quite a while, so I'm, I'm really happy it worked out. And of course, you know who Dr. Andrew Weil is. He's uh, you know, one of the world-renowned leaders and pioneers in the field of integrative medicine, and uh, which he defines as a healing-oriented approach to healthcare, which encompasses body, mind, and spirit. I've always felt, and I guess I've had the perspective that Dr. Weil has held a place within our culture as being one of the first voices to bring awareness to the field of alternative medicine in a way that was approachable, accessible, and contained actual techniques that one could apply to their own lives to increase overall wellness and well-being. And when referring to alternative medicine as a category of discussion, um, what I mean by that is, uh, you know, that includes within it diet, exercise, nutrition, supplements, vitamins, mental health, and an all-encompassing relationship to self-care. And as you'll hear in the podcast with Dr. Weil in just a little bit, he very eloquently um brings forth a discussion and maintains uh, uh, the idea that psychedelics play a role in all of this in some shape or form. And, you know, going back to alternative uh, medicine and overall self-care, you know, we see in today's headlines, uh, the headline news discussions around healthcare, of course, the ongoing healthcare debate. We have a tremendous disconnect in that everything from hospital bills to prescription medicines are on a runaway train of exploding costs and accessibility. Uh, and the disconnect being that uh, we're kind of in this attitude of sickness. We don't really hear that much of, uh, of a discussion um, about preventative health and maintenance and well-being. Uh, overall, you know, uh, quality of life wellness, you know, and if we adhere to that, it would make so many parts of the American health system irrelevant. You know, if we took better care of ourselves now and not waited, uh, 
you know, later on for things to fall apart and get on all of these medicines. If we took care of ourselves now, holistically, the culture of sickness wouldn't be so apparent. It wouldn't be what it is in American culture. And uh, for sure, it's without question, Dr. Warhol was one of the first medical professionals to bring this conversation into the mainstream. And we'll touch more on all of this in the show. But an announcement first, and we uh, talked about on the bumper of the show, the Integrative Mental Health Conference uh, taking place April 15th through the 17th in San Francisco. There is a psychedelic evening panel that includes uh, Dr. Weil, Dr. Charles Raison from CNN, um, Michael Pollan, the author, of course, of How to Change Your Mind, and the panel is moderated by Christine Whelan. And the, it will kind of cover the new science of psychedelics and what this means for mental health care. There is uh, a giveaway. You can win two free VIP tickets to the panel and two signed copies of Michael Pollan's book if you go to IMHC 2019 slash giveaway. Yeah, if you go to that website, um, you'll see an entry form, and the winner will be announced on March 29th. And just to make things a little bit more interesting, if you go to Instagram and follow me, Zach Leary Drome, D-R-O-M-E, and use hashtag MapsDrWeil in the comments for the posting of this episode, you'll get an extra chance to win uh, the tickets for the psychedelic panel at the Integrative Mental Health Conference. Why not? Let's throw a little social media twist in there, right? It is 2019 after all. Um, and generally speaking, it's a reminder, uh, the Integrative Mental Health Conference does look very, very cool. Um, all sorts of authors, physicians, researchers, professors lending insight that go beyond medications and conventional therapy and turning to alternative and complementary medicine. So again, go to the website, check it out, and use MAPS uh, as a promo code, M-A-P-S, and you'll get 10% off of the entire conference's registration. Very cool. So let's get into the podcast with the legendary, the one and only Dr. Andrew Weil. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Dr. Andrew Weil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining the MAPS podcast. It is a pleasure to be speaking with you. I've been wanting to do this one for quite a long time. And who would have thought that 2019 is such an amazing time to be talking about psychedelics, right? It's just wonderful to me to see this resurgence of interest. Uh, I have always felt that there's a tremendous potential for these drugs uh, in medicine and not just for uh, emotional psychiatric uh, conditions, but for physical ones as well, because I've seen remarkable disease and uh, cures of long-standing uh, disease problems as a result of psychedelic experience. And I hope as they become available for therapeutic use that, that people will begin to explore that. Yeah, it's an amazing thing that you just touched on. You have seen uh, the rise, the subsequent fall 
and the rise again of the of the second psychedelic renaissance um yeah what do you uh what do you think uh attributed the first or uh, how about i'm going to phrase it this way what do you think it is uh we can attribute the second renaissance of uh psychedelic research and medicine too because you know for a long time even i thought like wow this is going to stay underground i'm not really sure it's going to see the light of day in a serious uh research data-based context and all of a sudden here we are what happened i have to say that i I attribute a lot of that to the efforts of maps yes Uh, maps have done a tremendous job of uh organizing, furthering uh, research on the positive potentials of psychedelics. So that goes back for some time. And as a result of, of that and the, that the research findings there, there began to be um, increasing number of articles, interestingly enough, I think mostly in women's magazines, uh, that spoke of the positive uh, therapeutic potential of MDMA, of mushrooms, of LSD. So I think there was a, a building groundswell of positive publicity about them. Uh, more researchers got into it with the intention of documenting their positive effects. And then suddenly, I think there was the discovery uh, by people in Silicon Valley of psychedelics and microdosing. And now it seems to be really becoming mainstream. I see characters on uh, mainstream TV uh, dramas microdosing. That's an it's an amazing thing. I really, yeah. I mean, the the cultural shift. Uh, you know, maybe it took the the hysteria or the the cliche of the '60s to sort of die down, and for it to kind of <laughs> resurface back in 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 these circles that that, that you're talking about. Huh? Another factor, Zach, I think, is that uh, the reporting of positive effects in uh, returning veterans. Uh, with PTSD and other uh, serious conditions for which conventional medicine really has no great answers. Right. So that being said, what do you think? I mean, you just talked about PTSD. What else is, is really of interest to you in, um, in terms of the latest research that we're seeing? Well, certainly for psychological problems such as depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, PTSD, anxiety disorders, you know, I think great potential there. But but as I said to you, I think the tremendous uh, usefulness in um, uh, managing immune conditions, uh, in cancer, um, in in, uh, many, many chronic conditions. My experience has been that uh, experiences on psychedelics can show you or give you glimpses of the possibility of experiencing what's going on in your body in different ways. And seeing those possibilities can then motivate you to find uh, other ways of, of maintaining those experiences. That is a fascinating thing that you just said, seeing your body in different ways. So let's take something, an example like cancer, just for example, I mean, we can, we can use any model, but cancers is a good one. Um, and cancer becoming also seemingly a lot more, uh, um, I guess apparent within the general population. If psychedelics plays a role in seeing your body in a different way, like talk to me a little bit about your philosophy and your approach to like a holistic, uh, view of treating something like cancer that includes psychedelics and diet and other things like okay, that complicated question. So okay. First of all, 
<laughs> some of the earliest research with LSD was done at Spring Grove State Hospital in Maryland, a psychiatric hospital, uh, by um, uh, Walter Pankey and Stan Groff, and they uh, there were. Uh, they were guided LSD sessions with terminal cancer patients. Um, they were prepared for the experience, then had a guided session and then follow up therapy. Now, this was not with the intention of treating cancer. It was to uh, help patients come to terms with the fact that they were close to death. But the findings were very positive. People had less pain. They required less pain medication. They became much more comfortable with their approaching death. They were able to spend productive time with that. Now, that, that's, that was a good thing. Um, but I think I also would say that I have seen a couple of dramatic cases of remission of cancer that seem to have been initiated by uh, psychedelic experience. I, I, don't, I, I don't know how often that can happen or how great a possibility that is. But I certainly think that a psychedelic experience could be part of uh, helping people manage chronic pain or other symptoms of cancer. As an aside, let me just say, uh, a few years ago, I was in Beijing, and I was touring a, a hospital called Guangmen Hospital, a huge uh, modern hospital. Um, if you walk into it, you think you're in a Western hospital. The whole hospital was devoted to integrative medicine, and the largest department was oncology. And every cancer patient there gets chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, as indicated, but also get uh, gets very uh, sophisticated nutritional therapy, a very sophisticated herbal therapy designed to reduce the toxicity of standard treatments, increase their efficacy, reduce risk of recurrence, and improve quality of life. I saw great outcomes there. It made me very sad that so few cancer patients here can access that kind of care. And the reason for that being, I know that is a, also a very complicated question, why we can't receive that kind of care in America, but the the gist of it being what? That, that not enough oncologists are trained in integrative medicine. There is now a society for integrative oncology, yeah. but the demand for this is huge, and the numbers of, of providers uh, who can give that kind of treatment is very, very limited at the moment. Hmm. So if... If somebody, if you are seeing your body in a different, in a different way and also easing your anxiety around uh, death and dying, and if you happen to find yourself in a situation like this, how does that change the relationship to the disease? Like, I, I'm just trying to go with the intuition here. Like, if you have less anxiety around, uh, you know, what's going on within your body, the disease, to me, that feels like you are more at ease. You're more sort of at peace with what's naturally occurring. And that has positive effects for the actual, I guess, the physiology, the actual chemistry behind the disease then. Right. But let me say cancer is not the best example to take because okay. that's, that's difficult. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but of course. I, when you look at conditions like allergy, autoimmunity, chronic pain, you can see very dramatic uh, changes as a result of changes in the way you you think about that disease process on in a, during a psychedelic experience. I've given accounts of, of complete disappearance of lifelong allergies with one psychedelic session, uh, disappearance of chronic pain, um, uh, wow. remission of, of uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, and I think some of this, it just comes from shifting into a different mental state, maybe running different software through the system. Mm -hmm. And the result in the body is very dramatic. 
the shifting of software in the system and all of these different uh, you know ailments or maladies that may arise in the in the human condition are we is the average i guess western human in modern society uh experiencing more uh possible ailments than they did say 50 years ago i feel like there there's more uh, there's, I think, more options of what could go wrong. I know health and wellness and life expectancy is going up, but there seems to be a, more of a, an option for like a pill for everything, and that's sort of creating a, you know, an attitude of like, oh my gosh, maybe I have this, maybe I have this. I don't know. There's been a tremendous rise in allergy and autoimmunity. Uh, I oh. did you, know, for example, hay fever was unknown. Uh, before about 1880. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. I first appeared in England, uh, a number of autoimmune diseases also. And some of these seem to be a result of living in two clean environments. Uh, you know, the, there's the whole hygiene hypothesis that says that exposure to uh, dirt and germs early in life helps the immune system become strong. And that by keeping things too clean, we, we interfere with that learning process. So it's possible that some of these diseases of civilization are fairly recent. You know, I've spent time with um, uh, hunter-gatherer peoples in in Africa and South America, and it's autoimmune, it's autoimmune disease. So these are diseases of civilization. Wow, that is that is fascinating. So you, the life in the modern world, and 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 uh, increasingly in urban environments, more people shifting to urban environments are creating these uh, these new these new disorders like that um i mean i I know this is a sort of a a, a general question but to uh, as far as preventative medicine goes what what's the best approach for for avoiding things like this i think living in a as close to a natural environment as possible uh spending time in nature eating whole foods uh getting good physical activity good rest and sleep uh sleeping in darkness i mean also if you look at the lifestyles of people um in pre-modern society also i, I think our uh, in, uh, a, a recent phenomenon that uh, that disturbs me is our dependence on devices I just was going to ask that our relationship with technology. Yeah, I think it is it is dramatically changing brain function. Um, mm. It's incre- it's decreasing attention span. I think it's increasing anxiety and depression. I think it's really changing the way we experience the world. And we, you know, we haven't seen anything yet. This is going to continue. Yeah, I mean, this is this is still a brand new. It hasn't even affected a, a entire generation from start to finish yet. Um, I know we're drifting away from psychedelics a little bit, but that, that, that's okay. Uh, what's, what's your relationship to technology on a, on a personal level? I mean, how do you uh, find the balance and equanimity in it? I try to limit my screen time. You know, I, I stop in mid-afternoon. I try not to look at the computer. I not really don't use my cell phone all that much. Um, but, you know, it's difficult. It's just, uh, you know, it really invades your life. Um, and also you said we're drifting away from psychedelics, but I think it's been psychedelic experiences for me in nature yes. uh, that make me realize that that's how I want to be at more of the time and, and not in this world of screens and texts and beeps and so forth. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree with that 100%. I mean, psychedelics have done a lot for me personally around that idea. But what I, always, I, what I find so fascinating and under psychedelics, too, is that I do remember a life before uh, <laughs> so much screen time, you know, <laughs> yet we adapted so quickly. We morphed into the attachment so, so quickly, you know, and that's a, a, a puzzling thing for me to try to figure out how did that happen so fast yes and i think you know and going back to what we were talking about earlier about changing your experience of disease uh i think many people who have chronic disease or or anything that happens to you the natural reaction is to try to defend yourself against it and to fight what's going on in your body and i think my experience is that that mental stance, that defensive fighting posture actually strengthens and prolongs many disease processes. And in a psychedelic state, you are often able to drop that defensive posture. And when you do, if you, you know, accept somehow it moderates it and softens it and gives you the possibility of, of changing it. Right. That's a very, uh, I mean, all around, that's a very like Western paradigm, even if you go all the way to, you know, our ideas around death and dying. I mean, there is so much resistance and just like fighting, 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 extend life, extend life, like no forgetting quality of life, you know, just hang on, hang on and hang on without moving into the idea of surrender and just accept what's happening. Whatever is happening is happening. You know, exactly. and like the Eastern modality is, is, is so much different. Um, so with, within the, the medical community of which, I mean, you, you are part of, I mean, at, at this point, uh, um, where, where do you see psychedelics at today in 2019? What, uh, what's the role of psychedelics within the medical community? There's a lot of interest, uh, more than I've ever seen among my colleagues, both uh, older and younger. But the fact that that uh, all of these drugs are in are Schedule One controlled substances means that they're not available for therapeutic use. So most doctors uh, sh shy away from them. And another problem is that when you look at the uh, the positive uh, results. Uh, of, in research of psychedelic experiences, I think it's very dependent on the mindset of the experimenter. And one of the problems that happened in the late 60s and early 70s that turned people off of research in this area is that uh, many, uh, many researchers were unable to replicate the results of these early positive studies because they themselves didn't have experience of the substances and didn't really know how to drug. It's in the drug set and setting. And unless uh, people know how to manage set and setting, you don't get the positive, you don't realize the positive potential. So I think that that's a critical factor that um, if doctors are going to use these things or be able to use them, they themselves have to be very experienced in them. That is a very different, uh, I mean, compared to other uh, mental health um prescribed medications that's yep. a very very different relationship right because i you, you can't say that all, all doctors have a relationship with uh, <laughs> right well yeah, my, my um, mentor and colleague norman zinberg late norman zinberg who, with whom i did the first uh, double blind controlled studies of uh, ca cannabis he was a psychoanalyst and um he uh, directed the psychiatric residency program at Cambridge Hospital in uh, Boston, one of the Harvard hospitals, and he required that 
Olsram take one dose of all of the medications that they gave to patients. And as a result of that, there was less prescribing in that, uh, in that hospital than in other psychiatric hospitals. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, and you were talking a little bit about set and setting before. Um, I'd love to hear you, your take on what set and setting is and, and how that, how that works. Uh, Set is is a term for a person's expectations of what a drug or other intervention will do, um, and uh, often those expectations are unconscious and not, you know, easy to um, you know, not not easily revealed or understood. So it's a complex set of factors. Setting refers to the environment in which a drug is taken, both the physical environment and social environment, and. It is totally clear to me, and by the way, this is something that your father uh, was one of the first people to really emphasize, is that drug reactions are the result of the interaction of the drug, including the dose and the nature of the drug, set and setting. And the, the influence of set and setting can completely d control, direct, and even reverse the pharmacological action of a drug. You can give a dose of a sedative drug to um, subjects in conditions of set and setting where they will become stimulated. And you can give a dose of a stimulant drug to a person with manipulation of set and setting with the result that they will become sedated. So it can even reverse pharmacological action. And you cannot understand drug experiences without seeing it as a complex interaction of those fact three factors, drug set and setting. In the, the, the setting part of this, uh, who do you think is, um, uh, who's not a good candidate for psychedelic use? What makes somebody uh, potentially, you know, maybe this isn't for you. What do you think? Uh, I, I'm sorry, you, part of that cut out. Can you repeat oh, that question? Yeah, under the, the setting part of set and yeah. setting. Um, if you are looking at, uh, at a patient who is uh, considering uh, going down the road of uh, psychedelic medicine for whatever application, uh, mental health, physical, or um, just inspirational, what, who is not a good candidate for psychedelic use? What makes somebody potentially not ready for this type of experience? Very good question. I'm not sure I have the answer to that. Uh, you know, I would say if you see a person who's terrified of losing their mind, uh, if that's a very strong fear, I think they would have to be prepared very carefully for psychedelic experience. Uh, someone who's had a, had a past history of severe anxiety, uh, I think would have to be prepared very carefully. Right. And they potentially might not be a, a good candidate at all. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about, uh, about guided psychedelic therapy. Mm -hmm. If, if you're comfortable talking about that, um, what makes somebody a good guide? What should somebody look for when searching for a guide? I think first of all, their experience and also their motives in being a guide, because I see a number of people for whom I think guiding is kind of an ego trip. Uh, and that's <laughs> yeah. not that's kind of person uh, to put place yourself, you know, in, in their hands. Um, I, I think you want to know, how much experience the person has with uh, the substance, um, how many guided trips they've done, uh, what their training is, uh, you know, all of that. Right. That's all, all fair enough for sure. Um, right now, exactly. 
there's people interested in ayahuasca and you can get, get find ayahuasca sessions offered seems on every street corner at the moment something that i would never believe possible when <laughs> i was uh, studying it in south america but you know i've had people come to me saying that uh, you know i want to do an ayahuasca trip uh, you know and there's this uh, you know leaflet saying these people are offering it and i advise people to be just very careful about that to check out very thoroughly the credentials, training uh, of the person who's the guide, and to spend some time with them before you actually do the ceremony. Yeah, and one of the, uh, I'm, I'm certainly, I'm not passing judgment or, or, or anything like that, but we are seeing a lot, a lot more, I guess, so-called shamans arise and kind of come out of the work, woodwork. People are calling themselves shamans and, you know, see it here in Southern California all the time. It's like, oh my gosh, this is yeah. the, new, the new shaman doing an, an ayahuasca circle, you know, and it's, it's hard to know, uh, hard to know where to go, who yep. to trust. Right. Um, yep. And of course, that's one of the would be one of the great benefits of, you know, rescheduling these these plants and medicines, because we could have resources online to, you know, to, to guide people. But th that's something I, I wanted to ask. And I know it's sensitive around uh, uh, many medical uh, professionals, but because of the, the legal situation that most psychedelics are still find themselves in, where does somebody start? Like, where can they look for accurate information? Well, again, I would direct people to maps, which I think is, a, you know, an excellent resource. Um, I would say there's going to be a push to make MDMA available for therapeutic use, uh, maybe first because of all of the uh, positive potential there for treating PTSD, especially. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, next we might see... Um, some momentum toward uh, uh, legalization of psilocybin, um, maybe ibogaine for the treatment of addictions. Um, you know, I think this is coming, and uh, I understand Oregon has a is considering an initiative to um, legalize psilocybin. Um, so maybe we'll start to see these things happen. In general, uh, with the scheduling of drugs, uh, they never go. They never go from tougher schedules to lighter schedules. You know, when things move in to schedule one, they never get out. Um, but I think we're going to see this happen. Obviously, it's going to happen with cannabis at some point. Yep. And I think it'll happen with the psychedelics as well as a result of, uh, you know, the, the change in consciousness that is happening in our culture. Yeah, it seems like cannabis is is leading the way, and I know somebody uh, in in the House just put forth a bill on the federal level to uh, change the the scheduling of cannabis on a federal level. Um, you know, probably won't. It'll get shot down in the Senate in this administration. But it's interesting to see that. Uh, hey, at least the discussion is being had. You know, we spent. But, you know, I, when I did my marijuana studies, that was in nineteen sixty eight. Um, I, I naively thought that marijuana would be legal in five years. I thought it was just a matter of getting the right information out there. And I quickly learned that was not the case, that people believe what they want to believe. And uh, it's very hard to change minds. But certainly we are seeing a change happening. I think it's inevitable that um, cannabis will be out of schedule one. And actually, I think the push for psychedelics is going to come. Uh, fast. Another one I didn't mention is I think the psilocybin for the treatment of depression. I think there's going to be a lot of momentum behind that. Psilocybin in the treatment of depression. How um, how does that work from 
a, a, a mental health perspective. Um, I mean, I mm-hmm. have, I've had my own experiences around uh, depression and psilocybin therapy, but uh, I still find it kind of difficult to explain because it, uh, I mean, the shift in perspective is very powerful, but from, as a medical professional, how do you, uh, how can you um, sort of define the potential in that? You know, I'm not sure. I'm not an expert in that area, and I don't know how much of the positive effects are due to pharmacological action in the brain and how much to, uh, you know, a psychological effect that's conditioned by set and setting. There have been research papers published on this and um, increasing documentation of uh, positive effect there. So, but what the mechanism is, I don't know. Okay. And uh, with psilocybin specifically, is there anything uh, dangerous about psilocybin? I mean, I know with like MDMA, for instance, MDMA is a you know highly synthesized compound. Dosage is very, very important, uh, not just for the experience, but also for the safety of the body and so on and so forth. But with psilocybin and the natural plant medicines, uh, I do want to be objective a little bit and talk about any potential risks. As you know, there are two uh, broad families of psychedelics. There are the the smaller one are the phenethylamines or sometimes called substituted amphetamines that include mescaline and MDMA, um, a few others. Uh, the lar- the larger one are the indoles, which are related to DMT that's made in the in the pineal gland in the human brain. Um, the the uh, phenethylamines are all stimulants more so than the indoles, and there is a somewhat higher uh, potential for toxicity there of blood pressure and heart arrhythmias and so forth, although still I think they're quite safe drugs. But the indoles are remarkable for their complete absence of toxicity. I mean, you can't kill anyone with psychedelics. So on a purely pharmacological, physiological level, they're safer than any drugs we use in medicine. And I think the, the main risks are psychological, mm-hmm. and those are totally the result of certain settings, so, yeah. and as well as dose. So if, if uh, a proper dose is given in a, with proper attention to certain setting, I think the, uh, the risks associated with these drugs are very small. Um, and talking, I want to talk a little bit about preparation for a second, because I really uh, do consider you to be one of the uh, world's foremost experts on integrative medicine and uh, you know diet, nutrition, and exercise, and supplements and herbs. Uh, do you have an opinion on on what uh, an ideal like preparation ritual or uh, routine is for taking a, a psychedelic journey? I, I think it's be good to have, to have some sort of ritual that that you know, fits you personally in, in the ayahuasca world in the, um, among ayahuasqueros in South America, there are often, um, fairly rigid rules for preparing for the ceremony, avoidance of alcohol, meat, for example, abstaining from sex for a certain period before taking the drug. Uh, and probably all that is useful as a way of, of standardizing and adjusting set and setting to reduce the risk of a, of a bad trip. Um, I don't know, I think advice of that sort has to be very much individualized. And this is part of the art of being a guide, of being able to assess the belief system of a person as well as their physical state and give them specific advice about preparing. I I certainly uh, believe it is good to prepare in some way, both on the mental level, physical level, and not just uh, take a psychedelic on a whim. 
Absolutely. Um, I wanted to go back to talk about addiction for a second because we, we did uh, talk a little bit about Ibogaine. You mentioned it, uh, addiction being one of the you know the most fertile uh, places for groundbreaking work with psychedelics. Um, and since doing this podcast, I've I get a lot of uh, a lot of communication, people asking about uh, addiction uh, potentials, therapies, places to go. But I also get a lot of emails. Um, kind of expressing the, uh, I guess, the contradiction in it and not really understanding that. Being able to treat addiction to one substance with another substance. Um, so h- how does that work? Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, I mean, we can use Ibogaine or, or anything else, but uh, where do these, uh, these substances play a role in addiction? Also, a complicated question. First of all, I don't, I don't have any experience with ibogaine, and I have no idea how it might work. Uh, but I will, my understanding of addiction is this: first of all, I think addiction is a universal problem, something that we all deal with. And the only reason we don't see how universal it is is that some addictions are acceptable, such as addiction to exercise, or uh, addiction to power, or addiction to, to knowledge, or addiction to thinking. But I think we all deal wrestle with that we all tend to get stuck on things on external things to make us feel all right um and drugs are just one special case of that and my understanding also i think addiction is a a very tough to deal with you know and i see only really two ways of dealing it one is to shift addictive behavior behavior towards activities and things that are less harmful rather than more harmful. You know, it is better to be addicted to running than to smoking cigarettes, for example. Sure. <laughs> okay. But, but, you know, I've seen addicted runners who get into tremendous problems, both physical and mental. At any rate, that's, that's an example of shifting to a less harmful addiction. Um, I think to get to the root of addiction, uh, my, my sense is that Buddhist psychology has the most to say about that. I think the root of addiction is a tendency to get attached to external things, to uh, believe, to become under the illusion that the experience of completion, happiness, satisfaction comes from the external world. And I think the only way of dealing with that is by really restructuring the mind and coming to discover that everything you want is really inside you. And I think when you discover that, you know, you, you are free. Um, now, another I think you'll find this in the medical literature is that even with the, the hardest forms of drug addiction and I, such as uh, cigarette addiction, which I put right up there, you know, is right at the top um, or heroin addiction, you, you see that with, say with a cigarette addict, they may have tried again and again to quit. Um, and they talk about what a struggle it is, how horrible and they go back. But one day they wake up, and it's some little thing like looking at stained f- fingers or an, a, a dirty ashtray, and suddenly they don't want to do it anymore. And that, that time, it's no struggle, and that's the end of it. And I've seen that with heroin addicts, with people who are alcoholics, with uh, addicted smokers. So there, it, and that has to do with motivation. And the problem is you can't put motivation into someone else. So <laughs> until mo- motivation reaches a certain level, it is – tough or impossible to break addictive behavior. 
I, you know, the, I, I tell smokers that just make an attempt to quit, set a date and make an attempt. It doesn't matter if you succeed because each time you try, the reservoir of motivation becomes fuller and one day it'll be full enough that it will make it easy. Right. You have to hit your own bottom and have an awareness of your own bottom. That's, you know, severe enough for you to where you finally say, Hey, that's enough. Right. Right. Um, but like you explained earlier in, in that uh, answering that question about the human condition uh, possibly having like defaulting to many forms of addiction beyond substance abuse or anything like that. Um, and the Buddhist philosophical approach about, you know, uh, needing external things to fix you. But, but I want to talk about that a little bit more because I, I think the rise of addiction in, especially in America, um, I mean, I haven't really studied the, the, the global statistics, but you know, we're seeing the, the opioid crisis at a, an all time high here in America. Um, and you know, other, uh, OCD conditions that may be labeled as addiction really taking hold in food or sex, gambling, uh, screen time, <laughs> Facebook, whatever it is. Um, yeah, I think now in the, in the, DSM, uh, like, uh, social media addiction might even be in there. I heard. Um, yeah. So the, the condition of, uh, addiction in the, in the modern world, why is it increasing so severely? I, I, I don't know. Uh, if I had to guess, I would say it again has to do with our being so disconnected from nature and the natural world and natural rhythms of living, um, uh, I think that makes us more and more vulnerable. Integrative mental health conference of which psychedelics plays a part and um, what the new science of psychedelics means for mental health. Um, What does the new science of psychedelics mean for, for mental health? Well, first of all, uh, you know, the, the reason that we need a new science of mental health is that the current paradigm in psychiatry and in medicine in general is the biomedical model uh, that states that um, all emotional mental events are products of brain biochemistry um, and that the arrows of cause and effect flow one way from brain. Why can't they go the other way as well? Why can't the disordered thinking produce disordered brain biochemistry? But that model is so dominant um, that the field of psychiatry now has become really nothing more than dispensing medications. And we really have no idea what these psychiatric medications do, especially the developing brain. Uh, I think we're doing a huge experiment with our kids uh, who are on often on multiple psychiatric drugs. We have no idea what the long-term effects of those are. And I think also the uh, efficacy of these uh, antidepressants, anti-anxiety drugs is very questionable. And their safety is, I think, of great concern. Um, so I think that we need a new science of mental health that is really based in a, in a much broader, I would say, biopsychosocial spiritual model. Uh, and that opens up the possibilities of many more ways of influencing mental and emotional health through dietary, through physical activity, through use of natural substances. And I would certainly put psychedelic therapy and psychedelic experience in among those possibilities. So, um, you know, we have some presentations at this conference on uh, on ibogaine, on psilocybin, um, on MDMA therapy, on ketamine, and we'll have a public. Uh, discussion of that as well as the, you know, um, a, a, along with the uh, professional discussion. And the 
the attachment to pharmacology and you know prescription medications within the field of mental health like you just were talking about that um is that uh an effect of i guess the increase or the success or somewhat success anyway of innovation within the field of pharmacology or is it a result of the influence of what the conspiracy theorists love to call big pharma you know where does industry play a role in this and did it affect the entire practice of mental health treatment in a word yes i think there has been a uh, very unsavory collusion of uh, pharmaceutical companies medical journals and insurance companies um, to produce a uh, you know a really intense marketing campaign um, that has led to this widespread overuse of psychiatric medication. If you look at antidepressants, for example, I think that um, you know that collaboration of those interests has been very successful in convincing people that ordinary states of sadness are matters of imbalances of brain biochemistry that have to be corrected by taking medication. And, um, you know, you, it, that has affected the prescribing habits of physicians, the, the demands of patients. Um, and, and that coupled with the fact in our training of mental health professionals and doctors in general, we don't teach them other ways of managing these conditions. Uh, that's what I have been trying to correct through the University of Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine. We have, you know, very intensive uh, trainings for medical professionals, including psychiatrists, um, that look at all the things left out of conventional training, such as nutrition and mind-body interactions and botanical medicine and so forth. And it, it just seems so like obvious and intuitive to me that or and obvious intuitive to me that the that the omission of things like uh nutrition into the treatment of of these disorders being left out of of the curriculum with these medical professionals is just such a glaring omission like how could that possibly have happened how could that possibly be (laughs) i couldn't agree more take nutrition uh the total in four years at Harvard Medical School was 30 minutes, which were grudgingly allowed to a dietitian at one hospital to tell us about special diets we could order for patients. That has not changed a whole lot since I've been out of medical school. And when nutrition is taught, it's taught as biochemistry, and it's forgotten as soon as the biochemistry exams are over. So, you know, I think most uh, medical professionals are functionally illiterate in nutrition. It's not their fault. They weren't they weren't taught it. And there's many consequences of that. One is the abysmal food served in hospitals in this country. Uh, you know, another is the complete lack of attention to uh, diet when you're when you're dealing with a patient, and, and especially the influence of diet on on mental and emotional health. You know, there's now a tremendous amount of research going on on the microbiome, the organisms we have in our gut, and how they influence the brain and mental and emotional health. And this is a whole new you know, area that's just suddenly opened up. And it does seem to me at least that, uh, something like psychedelics, that, uh, nutrition and organic food, the, the source of our ingredients, what's, uh, not shouldn't be in our food, um, healthy eating options is making its way into the front and center of American consciousness. Like I, I just see, you walk in just to a, a, an average supermarket, not a Whole Foods or anything like that, and the, the organic section is, you know, 
it's not it it's not hidden done. anymore. Um, is that is that true? Are we seeing an yeah, improvement? Yeah, remember you're in California. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. It is changing and changing faster in some parts of the country than others. But there is still a remarkable um, absence of attention to all of this in the medical profession and in psychiatry, especially. Um. And finally, just to uh, to to wrap it up, uh, I want to backtrack a little bit. And you you are talking about uh, the education and just the general knowledge of the of medical professionals at large and in, in the mental health field. Um, what's it going to take for psychedelics to become, um, I guess, just part of the go to? Um, I guess, list of options for treating certain conditions within the medical community. Is it going to take, like, does it have to find its way into the universities and into the curriculum for it to be part of the practice? I mean, that just seems like it could take a whole generation. Or, well, well, it is going to take more time, but I think uh, what will probably most accelerate that is the appearance of more research data of the kind we've been seeing that documents the positive effects of these substances uh, in ways that medical professionals can connect with. So the kind of research that's been done uh, by Roland Fish, uh, you know, and, and people at Johns Hopkins, at uh, UCLA, uh, the kind of research that Max has sponsored, I think that more than anything is going to make this change happen. Well, I'm so happy to do this podcast with you, uh, Dr. Weil. I know you've been on, on the front lines of uh, uh, mental health and psychedelic consciousness for decades now. Um, it seems like you're going to live forever. Are you? Are you planning to? Is that I am not. I don't think I want that, but <laughs> I'm doing okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. Pleasure to talk to you. You too. Bye-bye.